Welcome back to our Paro research session. I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Our next speaker is Dr. Narain Kumar. And I uh, should let you know that Dr. Kumar is the recipient of the 2021 Elizabeth Nash Memorial Fellowship Award. Having witnessed his father's experience a life-threatening recurrent pseudomonas infection that was non-responsive to antibiotic treatment, Dr. Kumar joined the lab of Dr. Suzanne Fleissig at UC Berkeley in the spring of 2020 as a postdoctoral research scholar to study the life cycle of intracellular pseudomonas aeruginosa and the etiology of microbial keratitis. Here, his research focuses on understanding how the host environment contributes to the evolution of bacterial pathogens that evade antimicrobial treatment and the host immune response. His ongoing work combines high-resolution imaging methods with omic-based technologies to understand the adaptation of intracellular pseudomonas aeruginosa. His research aims to identify novel therapeutic targets to better manage challenging bacterial infections. We welcome Dr. Kumar for his presentation on Pseudomonas aeruginosa diversifies inside cells to form an adaptive niche that resists antibiotic treatment. So I'm looking forward to your talk and take it away. Thank you so much, Beate. And thank you everyone for sticking around for this session. And I would like to thank CFRI for this opportunity to present my work and support the research that we do. Uh, to switch gears a little, since a lot of the talks that have happened um, in this meeting have been towards gene delivery, talking more about the host, I will be talking more about a bacteria that we are quite familiar with, which is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Um, we will be talking about intracellular Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but before we sort of make that big jump, I would like to focus on the fact that uh, and give you a brief history about Pseudomonas itself. So it was first isolated in 1882 by the French pharmacist Carl Gisard, forgive my French, from a wound infection. And what really prompted that idea was the blue-green color that he saw on bandages. And after isolating it, what was found was there was a gram-negative bacterium, which is basically a bacteria with two cell membranes and had a polar flagella. And there was coined the term Pseudomonas, which was really meant to encompass any rod-shaped bacteria as shown over here with a polar flagella. This was an image that I took recently to really depict this. And you can see quite clearly that the flagella is a long appendage at one end of the bacteria that it uses to swim around in different environments, whereas the bacteria itself is quite small relative to this. What we know since its first discovery is that we can find it in diverse environments where we find it in the soil. It is a common pathogen even for plants. We can find it in water supplies, um, uh, fresh water supplies like lakes and ponds, and even our friendly household pets where it can bother them by using frequent UTIs. Quite familiar for this audience is that it is also causing a lot of severe infections in humans, 
And to my knowledge, it can infect most body sites and be quite problematic. It always helps me to think about the reasons why a bacteria could be so adaptable and also think of the environments that it inhabits. And one of the reasons for this molecular adaptability of the pathogen is that, <clears throat> excuse me, it has a large genome. It is, to point out, 5.5 to 6 megabases is quite large for uh, a general bacteria. With the large genome, it encodes many, many, many proteins that it uses to sense its environment. These two component system regulators, as we call them, are nothing but sensors, as I've shown to the top right over here, that are embedded into the membrane of the bacteria and can sense changing environments, such as increases in calcium, a close contact with the host cell, a lot of salt in its environment, which is then used to tune gene regulation within the bacteria. While bacteria can do this quite efficiently, it's quite hard and tricky to study these and the interplay between these modular systems and how they ultimately lead to the production of toxins or also change of state of the bacteria. Well, well like any bacteria or any cell, it's not just that it is responding to the environment, but it would also like to release constituents into its environment and then lead to changes. To the right, I'm showing you a membrane structure of a gram-negative bacteria, which is a lipid bilayer that separates the inside of the bacteria from its environment. And in bacterial speak, we call these a secretion systems because it can help transport proteins from the bacterial cytoplasm into its host environment. These secretion systems can also be used to inject things directly into a neighboring cell. Here, I'm showing you two kinds of secretion systems. One is the type three secretion system, uh, and the other is the type six, but both of which, and I think I would like you to remember is that these are syringe-like protein apparatus that can inject a toxin or any component from within the bacteria directly into the host cell. The toxin that is of interest to us and the components that we study are those of the type three secretion system. And this will keep coming up again and again, but that's what the talk is going to be focused on. Talking a little about the type three secretion system and how it is regulated. Here I'm showing you a genome, which is about 6.2 megabases of Pseudomonas. And it expresses a protein called EXSA. Why is it important? It is the master regulator for the expression of the type three secretion system, but also the toxins that are being produced by it. Common toxins that you will hear in the stock are XOS, XOU, not so much for XOT and XOY. So when we have a bacteria and we isolate it, we can determine whether it produces a type three secretion system by inducing it and also looking at the different proteins that are secreted by running it on a gel. 
the only thing I would like you to appreciate is that when we're looking at a strain and we induce it with low levels of calcium, you can then start seeing these different proteins that are secreted outside of the bacteria. And we can then determine what toxins the bacteria produces and how do we characterize the bacteria based on the presence of these toxins. For a long time, I think all pseudomonas have been clumped into a single category, thinking of them as being similar. But there's one very important distinction that I would like to point out. The presence of the toxin XOU and XOS are mutually exclusive, and there are very few and rare occurrences when XOS and XOU can exist on the, on the genome together. The reason why that is important is, and here I'm talking about all isolates, environmental or human isolates, <clears throat> The reason it's important is that they differ in the severity of the diseases. We can think of exo strains that express an exo-U toxin as being acute, whereas strains that express exo-S as being chronic. To complicate this a little more is that even chronic strains that we get from humans may have loss of function mutants in the type three secretion system, which, which really, suggests to me is that we need to be considering these differences when we are thinking of an infection. To sort of talk a little more about strains that exo express XOU versus XOS, here I'm showing you a movie that was taken by Dr. Fleisig in the late 90s, it's 1997. And here you can see epithelial cells interacting with a bacteria that expresses XOU and you can see it make its way through the epithelium, almost really killing all the cells that it interacts with. And this happens really quickly because if you look at the time, that's real-time imaging, you can see that it happens within 20 minutes. Whereas strains that express XOS interact with the cell and you can see the time over here, again, similar time point, I think it was taken the same day. And you can see that the cells still remain healthy, bacteria are interacting with these cells and freely swimming around. Here's another movie that was taken in early 2000s where you see bacteria actually swimming inside of the cell. Now this you do not see in strains that express XOU and I think that's a very important distinction. So strains that express XOS can invade epithelial cells and live inside of them. The other thing that I would like you to appreciate here is that the time scale of all of this, it took about one and a half hours for the bacteria to start invading, replicating within the cells, and even form these membrane blebs, as you can see over here. But the cell is still healthy. You do not see a lot of cell death, as you see in the strains expressing XOU. So a lot of the work that we do in the lab and that I've been using for this uh, project is use strains that express XOS and then study their intracellular lifestyles. But before I dig into it and talk more about it, a lot of what we know about the adaptations of Pseudomonas um, in the CF lung or any other environment is that we am showing you an epithelia over here with mucus over it. And you can 
the idea is that the bacteria get lodged into this mucus. It uses this environment to grow, to form biofilms. But the question that we're asking is, what if these bacteria are inside the cell? Does that, and does that present a different kind of challenge when we think of these infections? Here, I'm showing you a electron micrograph of a mouse cornea that was infected by Pseudomonas that has expro exo s And here you can see again bacteria inside the cell. And here you can see them in like a nice little vacuole within the cell to show that, and the point of this slide here is to show that this is not just something we see in cell culture, but we also see them in a mouse infection. But how is it related to the CF lung and what do we know about the type three secretion system when we think of infections associated with cystic fibrosis? So we know that individuals develop antibodies against toxins of the type three secretion system, mostly XOS and different components of the needle. Uh, we know that strains that express XOS are more associated with chronic infections and also lead to worse um, clinical outcomes in individuals with CF. In a study that was done in Brazil, they found that 48 patients, isolates from 48 patients were actually positive for XOS and very few were positive for XOU. In another study that was done in the Australasian cohort looking at bronchialveolar lavage, and they decided to characterize their strains um, in, in terms of the isolates, and they found that 77 strains were positive for XOS compared to XOU. And this has been shown multiple times in studies that were done in Iran, in, in US, and is, is quite established for XOS being associated with uh, chronic infections. So the idea then is that strains expressing XOU are associated with sort of these earlier episodes that develop uh, antibiotic resistance, but XOS may be a later stage. What has also been found is that secretion of the toxin decreases with the duration of infection, and I'd like to talk a little more about that. In fact, in isolates that have been taken from prolonged infections over long periods of time, the type three secretion system mutants are recovered quite often. In some cases, we may also isolate mutants that are increased uh, toxin producing strains. So they have a lot of type three production, but 59% of the isolates uh, from CF patients have some kind of loss of function mutations in the type three secretion system and type three secretion expression uh, produces over prolonged time. Here's a study that I'm showing that followed individuals after their first pseudomonas infection, and then looked at the percentage of strains that expressed the type three secretion system. And what you can see is that the expression of the type three secretion system was reduced uh, longer uh, with longer durations of pseudomonas infection. A thing that they also mentioned in the study was that while they were able to see this down regulation, it could be that different environments in the lung could be promoting this production of the type three uh, mutants. And, and quite nicely, I think this was followed up in a 2015 study 
that looked at different regions of the lung and then tried to determine whether there were differences in the genotype of the bacteria that was isolated from different regions. What they did, they did genomic analysis on it, and here I'm showing you a PCA plot. The way to read it is that points that are close together are similar, and points that are further apart are different. So by looking at this one graph, we can see that <clears throat> bacteria that were isolated from the upper right regions were very different from bacteria that were isolated from the left upper regions. Um, and then followingly looking at another patient, they looked at 10 patients, and here I'm showing you results from two. Similarly, there was a difference between bacteria that were isolated from the right upper region versus the left lower region. They went on to look at whether the strains expressed the type three secretion system. This is a similar assay to what I had shown you earlier, where you can induce the type three secretion system and see if the effect occurs. And what they found was in the lower regions of the lung, there were more strains that had type three mutants, but in the upper region, there were more strains that were positive for the type three secretion system. And that can be seen here quite nicely in this where you see strains in the lower part of the lung do not have expression of the type three secretion system, whereas strains in the upper region have expression of the type three secretion system, again, expressing XOS, as I mentioned earlier. So the question then is how do mutations in the type three secretion system affect, or how are they affected by the intracellular environment, but more so if, there is a mutation in the type three secretion system, does it make it less virulent or less invasive? Well, the, the thing that we know from that is that when you have a mutant in the type three secretion system, they're equally well at invading a cell. And here I'm showing you an epithelial cell that was infected with a type three mutant or an EXSA mutant. And you can see them nicely localizing to vacuoles and, and sort of replicating within it. In another study from our lab, what we showed is that when you took a normal airway epithelial cell and, and also compared it to a CF cell line, uh, you could see that the CF cell lines had reduced ability to take up bacteria, but when they expressed the type three secretion system, they actually grew much better inside a CF uh, epithelial cell line while mutants in the type three secretion system did not um, replicate as much, they were still good to invade the CF epithelial cells. So the, the question then we, need, we would like to ask, and I would like to give a little more background about this, is that how does the environment influence a type three secretion system? And for that, I would like to introduce a concept of acute to chronic switch that really associates with biofilm formation and the problem of antibiotic resistance. So the environment for any bacteria is basically signaling whether it is a favorable environment for it to produce a lot of proteins. And we know that high osmolarity, think salt or low calcium can trigger the expression of the type three secretion system, and it can affect the growth rate of the bacteria that are invading and infecting. On the opposite end, 
increasing the amount of calcium can signal biofilm formation and switch of the bacteria. To show it diagrammatically, what we can think of is that when bacteria see a favorable environment, they're rapidly growing, they swim well, and they produce toxins. Whereas when they are in a depleted environment, say in the presence of the host cell or in the host environment, they will be slow growing, have low motility, but also have biofilm formation. But how does this affect antibiotic resistance? Well, the thing that I think of in this paradigm is that antibiotic resistance for a bacteria that is in a favorable environment could be more intrinsic. That is, either it has genes that can resist an antibiotic or it develops mutations that makes it more resistant, but these are encoded in the genome. Whereas when you think of resistance in a depleted environment, these are extrinsic factors where the environment switches the bacteria into a state that reduces the efficacy of the bacteria, but otherwise it's not really have increased resistance. And that's the paradigm that we are studying in terms of intracellular bacteria. Because it's going to be important for what I present, I'm going to talk about this a little more in a more, a little more detail is that bacteria switch from this acute state, which is toxin producing, rapid metabolism, rapid growth, but to a chronic state, which is a biofilm. And we know that bacteria, specifically Pseudomonas, has a cyclic diet which is a bacterial second messenger that signals to shut down toxin production and turn on biofilm formation, which is associated with increased resistance to antibiotics. That said, what we know so far is from the perspective of an extracellular pathogen and how it interacts with the environment. So the question we asked was, do bacteria within a cell undergo this acute to chronic switch? So as a first step, what we can do is we can look at epithelial cells infected with wild-type bacteria, but then look at the expression of different genes. The way that can be done is think of it as a protein, which is a green, green fluorescence protein that has a different instruction package. So we can take the instruction package for any gene that we would like to study, put it next to a fluorescent protein, and only when the instructions are made by the bacteria, it will make the fluorescent protein. So here we are looking at toxin production versus the production of cyclic diet versus the production of the biofilm gene all by the same bacteria inside the cell. So because we can do this, we can switch out whichever gene we'd like to study in the start of it and then produce the same protein and then study it over time. So what we've been able to do, and we've shown this uh, earlier as well, that when you have epithelial cells infected with bacteria, there's a population that spreads and fills the cytosol and they express the type three secretion system, which we think of as the acute phase. But quite surprisingly, what we find is that the small population of bacteria that express biofilm genes are not localized, they are localized to a small compartment within the cell, which we think of as vacuoles. 
And correlating with the switch that I'd mentioned earlier, that high cyclic DIGMP leads to biofilm formation, we also see an increase in biofilm-associated proteins inside the cell. How do we know that? Because we have added an antibiotic outside the cell so we can study these populations. And I'll go into that a little bit. Just so that you can appreciate, so again, it's the same cell line, which are epithelial cells that are infected with the same bacteria, but we are only seeing different genes that are being expressed. So on the left, I'm showing you the acute infection where you can see that bacteria fill the cytosol, express the type three secretion system. And as pink, you can see the cell dies over time. Whereas when the bacteria express the biofilm protein or genes, you can see them as puncta from within the cell. Uh, and, and you can see this quite robustly. So the question then we had was, does this occur in the same cell? Because we could be looking at different cells and then say that they have different, uh, their populations. So what we did is we infected cells. Um, we look at the protein, the gene expression for CDRA, which is the biofilm gene, and then look at all the other bacteria with an antibody. And we see that about 20% of the cells have some kind of bacteria in it, of which 7% express CDRA, but you can see about 6% of the bacteria express the toxin as well as the biofilm inside the same cell, which is quite exciting and which was not known to our knowledge before this. So if this is the case, uh, we can, can we see this in a mouse infection? And here you're looking at a mouse cornea and we use it so that we can study the mouse cornea because it's a clear surface right when the mouse is alive. And you can see that the same phenotypes that I've shown you earlier, the swimming of the bacteria in the blebs and swimming uh, and the aggregate formation inside the cell occurs even in a live mouse corneal epithelia. Um, this is the only mouse-associated slide that I'll be showing through entire talk. So rest of the data is all in epithelial cells, and we're developing this model to study these phenotypes in more detail. So, so far, what I've shown you is that pseudomonas, specifically that express XOS, are inside the cell. And then some of those populations express CDRA. So... The question is, are intracellular bacteria that switch to a chronic state more resistant to, um, just, sorry. Yeah, the question is that, are they more resistant to an antibiotic? So when we think of antibiotics, we need to think of whether they are permeable into the cell or not, because an antibiotic that does not get inside the cell is actually not that useful uh, because it won't really target the bacteria that are inside. And since there was interest in some of the earlier talks of the different classes of antibiotics, you can see that there are classes, the classes are determined on based on where the targets are. So beta lactams will be for the cell wall, polymyxins, again, the same. Some may affect the ribosome and some may affect the DNA replication machinery. So to really choose an antibiotic that we could use to study these populations in more detail, we needed to screen them and determine which one of these would be permeable. So here I'm showing a list of the antibiotics that we screened and the permeability into the host cell. 
I was quite surprising that only ciprofloxacin or the fluoroquinolones and tetracyclines are permeable into the cell, whereas some of the other commonly used antibiotics, such as tobramycin, amikacin, do not really go inside the host cell. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is that the amount of antibiotic matters. So we want to go lower in the amount of antibiotic that is used to kill the bacteria. So we focused on using ciprofloxacin or ofloxacin, which had a low MIC, which is the concentration used to kill 50 or 90% of the bacteria. So now using the antibiotics and the reporters, we decided to see if there is actually an effect. So we, here we use ofloxacin, and I'm gonna show you movies of epithelial cells that were infected with the bacteria, but express two different kinds. The first movie is gonna show the expression of the type three secretion system or the toxins. And what I hope you can see here is that the first one is no antibiotic, followed by increasing concentrations. And you can see at the MIC of the bacteria, you can see that there are still cells surviving or bacteria surviving inside the cell. And you need up to four times um, or 16 times the MIC to kill intracellular bacteria. We can quantify this by seeing how many cells in our field of view have any bacteria in them. And you can see that by using one microgram per mil or four times the MIC, you can see the reduction. But when you start looking at the same cells infected by the same bacteria, but only looking at a different gene, which is reporting CDRA expression, you see in the bottom panel that as high as four micrograms per mil, you see a persistence of these populations, um, suggesting that these populations are not responding to the antibiotic. And we can quantify it and you see still the same number of cells that contain any bacteria in them over time. So the question then we wanted to ask is, can we dig deeper and see where are these populations that express a biofilm and are resistant to the antibiotic? We did something called this correlative light microscopy, correlative light electron microscopy where we look at the same cell in fluorescence so that we know it expresses the gene and then look at it via EM to see the same populations of bacteria in closer detail. So there is an antibiotic present which gets inside the cell, but the bacteria still maintain their nice membrane. So it suggests to us that they're viable. Along with that, you can see a nice membrane um, around it, which we think is host-derived or could be a vacuole that is present inside the cell. So that says to us is that these intracellular populations that are protected from ofloxacin are vacuolar populations because there we can see them, but also that they're type three off because that's where uh, type three bacteria go in, mutants go too. Now, I'm gonna show you one more slide, which is a method slide before we look at the data, because the thing is, so far I've shown that we can use different reporters to study these different populations, but can we use one reporter and study both populations at the same time? So for this, we use an inducible construct where we say, okay, we can trigger the expression of GFP when study all bacteria inside the cell. 
And in these two boxes, what I hope you can appreciate is using this tool is that you can see bacteria that spread within the cytosol, but you can also look at bacteria that form these puncta um, inside the cell. Now, and, and we can use this to study the effect of the antibiotic and look specifically look at which populations survive within the cell. So this is a busy slide, but the setup is the same. We are infecting with wild-type bacteria, and we're increasing the concentration of antibiotics going across and looking at two time points, six hours and 12 hours. And what you can see is that it takes about twice the MIC of the bacteria to kill these spreading populations, but then you're left with a vacuola population that is resistant to higher concentrations of antibiotics. And we can see if there's a difference in the number of cells that contain bacteria, and you, don't, you see that there's not really that much of a difference. Further suggesting that ofloxacin treatment is only targeting cytosolic populations, but what about the vacuolar populations? So the other question now we have is that we know that they're undergoing an acute to chronic switch inside the cell, but what about the biofilm genes? We know that biofilms limit antibiotic um, diffusion, but are they important? So to do that, we used another tool that was previously published before, which is which shows that a strain, we can use a strain that produces high cyclic DIGMP, which signals biofilm formation, and then we can mutate individual components of the biofilm, which is CDRA, the polysaccharides, and you can see a reduction in biofilm formation. This is nicely depicted here, where you take a wild-type strain that forms these bacterial aggregates, but you can mutate CDRA and the aggregate is almost gone. And you can see it again over here. So we said, okay, can we use the same tools in our infection model and then study their survival over time to see if biofilm genes are important? And what we find is that if we look at epithelial cells, number of bacteria in the epithelial cell or number of cells containing bacteria, and then look at the populations that survive within the cell with no ofloxacin or high concentrations of ofloxacin, you still see the same pattern where you see spreading, but only survival of the vacuolar populations. If you take a mutant in one of the biofilm components, it does not change. But if you take all exopolysaccharide mutants, it, it makes no difference. And if you take a quadruple mutant, which is removal EPS, and CDRA, you still see no difference and you still see vacuolar survival. That suggests to us that the biofilm components, though they are expressed, are not really involved in this resistance to ofloxacin and there may be other factors that could be playing a role. So in, in summary, what I've shown you is that there is a population of intracellular bacteria in epithelial cells when it expresses the type three secretion system, specifically XOS. They undergo an acute to chronic switch and antibiotics that target intracellular bacteria may not be targeting vacuolar populations and the biofilm components that are expressed from inside the cell may be doing other things than limit antibiotic um, diffusion itself. So that brings to the other part because we're int very interested in this and we'd like to know whether 
what's about the vacuole that makes these populations resistant? And if we can understand these, we can make treatments or we can identify ways to target them better. So the obvious questions are, what is the vacuole made up of? And what are the genes that are being expressed by bacteria from within the vacuole that make it resistant? To tackle the first part of this, uh, again, this is a busy slide, but I only want you to focus on, on this section here, because we know that bacteria that get inside the cell can traffic to complicated pathways, but they can, when they are in a vacuole, they will fuse to an acidic compartment, which is a lysosome. And some bacteria can use it to their advantage. Some bacteria can modify it to their advantage. And what we've shown previously is that when we have infection with Pseudomonas in bronchial cells or CF cells, you see that they are in acidic compartments where the red is acidic and the green is bacteria. So if you look at yellow, they are in an acidic compartment. And that number increases when you have mutants in the type 3 secretion system. But what we don't know is what are the proteins associated with this compartment? So we did exactly that and said, okay, if we take an acidic compartment, we know the protein, which is LAMP3, and can we localize bacteria to it? So again, just to talk briefly about the assay, we infect the cells, infect, add bacteria to it, and look for localization to LAMP3. When you add ofloxacin, if the bacteria are resistant to it, they would still be there, so you would see both signals coming from it. And if it is sensitive, you would see only one signal coming from it. So if you look at it over here, green is bacteria, cyan is the LAMP3 protein, and white will be the co-localization. When you look at it in ofloxacin-treated, you do not see a reduction in co-localization, which is quite interesting to us and also quite exciting. If we do the same assay in CF cell lines with wild-type infection, again, you see that there are bacteria in uh, vacuoles that co-localize to LAMP3 that doesn't really go away, suggesting that bacteria that are resistant to ofloxacin have LAMP3 on their membrane, and we could do something about it with that. The other question then we're asking is, okay, now we no, kind of have an idea of what's on the membrane, but can we find out what is the bacteria expressing during this time? And to answer that question, we use cell lines again, bronchial cell lines and CF cell lines, and infect them with bacteria, treat with ofloxacin, and then look at gene expression via RNA-seq or proteomics. And here I'm, I'm going to show you data just in the interest of time for one of the cell lines, which is the CF cell line. And you can see that when you infect with wild-type bacteria, treat with ofloxacin, they're differentially expressed genes. And we can put them into a software called Adage that was uh, developed to study gene signatures and green are, the green are the genes that showed up in our assay, and red are the ones that are part of the network but did not really show up as being differential. And what we find is that a lot of the genes associated with the type 3 secretion system were in fact downregulated when bacteria infected a CF cell. What was upregulated, on the other hand, were repressors of the type 3 secretion system, but other components that could be involved in the increased resistance of these bacteria that we are following up on. 
if we, in an agnostic manner, if we take, okay, these are the genes that we found in our assay, and then try to determine whether they have similarity to other known data, what we find is that ofloxacin-resistant bacteria um, seem to be similar to bacteria that have been isolated from CF patients in the cohorts from 1973 to 2008 from Denmark, whereas bacteria that were sensitive um, seem to be similar to grown bacteria grown in suspensions. We're still processing this data because we're getting a lot of this information um, in the next few weeks, uh, but it is still preliminary and we are looking into it as like, can we leverage some of this information? Can we take some of these mutants that of genes that were upregulated and then see if they have reduced survival in CF um, cell lines? And that would suggest that we can target these genes then as, as novel mechanisms to then study their survival, but also make them more sensitive and make them more amenable to treatment if they're resistant to ofloxacin. So in summary, what I hope I've shown you here is that intracellular bacteria that express the XOS uh, can co-opt an endocytic compartment during the course of infection. Uh, the vacuolar populations downregulate the type three secretion system and they may be, they're better at resisting higher concentrations of antibiotics, which could be a diffusion problem or could be an adaptation problem. And there are bacterial gene signatures of these ofloxacin resistant populations that seem similar to long-term CF isolates and, and more work needs to be done to sort of figure that out. So in, in closing, the idea that I would like to leave with, and this is a question that I ask myself a lot, so in this paper that I'd shown earlier, they also showed that isolates that were taken from different parts of the lung had increased resistances to tobramycin as well as ciprofloxacin. What it, they weren't showing, uh, what they didn't do or could not find was correlations with the status of the type three secretion system and the emergence of resistance. So the question I have for that I ask and I would like to open to general audience is that I'll be missing a population of bacteria when we think about pseudomonas infections. Could this be intracellular bacteria and, and what could be its implications? So I would really like to thank all lab members, CFRI for their funding. This would not have been possible without the funding, but also some because of amazing lab members Having started right before the pandemic began, um, it needed a lot of work within them. And I think we have a great group. Some of the postdocs who helped on this work, Vince, Abby, Matteo, and Eric, he's a graduate student. We have an amazing group of undergraduates who work together. So Dina did a lot of the co-localization work, some of her collaborators and uh, our sources of funding. So with that, I can take any questions. Thank you. Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for your incredible presentation that's uh, all new to me. So it's it's really fantastic science that you have presented here. And I um, just look into the, the chat box right now for any questions and until the questions come in. Uh, I think it was totally new to me that the bacteria will invade 
the cells, the, the airway epithelial cells. So in, in my mind, um, I basically thought that the, um, the bacteria will be stuck in the mucus and, and then cleared. And so I think it would be uh, so amazing to see in a CF tissue uh, and, and I cannot think of anybody who has done that before uh, to provide the evidence that we do see bacteria of pseudomonas go inside the cell and form biofilms inside the cell. So uh, can you educate me if that has been done or, or is underway? So, I don't know. So I think uh, in vivo, to my knowledge, it's it's not been done. And, and we're just starting to develop the, the model because mm -hmm. the problem earlier was that Pseudomonas doesn't like using any of the tools that have been developed for other pathogens. So, mm -hmm. so we have, we've been basically developing these uh, methods. And uh, when, when we think of intracellular bacteria, the, the general process is you, you take uh, in a mouse model, you take the lung, you grind it, and then you see how many bacteria recover. So you're kind of missing that spatial information that could tell us whether they are inside or outside in the mucus or, or where they are. And we'd like to do that. Um, uh, and that's sort of the ongoing work that we're trying to show um, that we can study these populations in different reporters and show that in an in vivo model that this could happen. Um, yeah, to, to my knowledge, it's it's not been studied to that extent. Yeah. So wonderful. Um, so I don't see any questions coming in at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. So, but just let me ask you then. So uh, I think you are in the first year of your project. Yes. And if you just briefly can tell us uh, what are your next steps? What are your next experiments? I would love to hear about that. Right. So our, the next step is to look at the RNA-seq data because we're just finishing that up. And uh, we're also looking to study the vacuoles further. So we are fractionating them, separating them from the rest of it. Uh, because what we found is that we can do a lot of wholesale analysis, but it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because we're always having two populations in it at the same time. So, so we're working on methods to separate the two populations and, and then say, okay, can we study the vacuolar population independent of the cytosolic population and see what proteins are being expressed and then also see whether there are genes that are expressed by the bacteria that, that we can localize specifically to these vacuolar compartments. So let me ask you then just one conceptual question also mm -hmm. that I thought was interesting. So you mentioned that about 15 bacteria would enter the cell. Is that mm -hmm. about the number of bacteria? So, so if you count the, the GFP expressing dots, Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, you know, how, how much volume is actually involved in that? I mean, a cell is so, so packed, you know, the cytosol is full of all these organelles and, and, and cytosolic compartments. And then how does the cell deal with that extra volume that actually is coming in? So do the yeah. cells swell yeah. or do they get bigger? Or I, I just have a hard time to imagine how how this can work at all. I mean, you have yeah. 15, whatever the volume is. I, I didn't do the volume ca calculations, but I'm sure you did. Can you just expand on that just for one minute? 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So we looked at it earlier to see how the bacteria can respond to it. One of the things that the bacteria induces, it, it forms these blebs that are extracellular membrane occlusions. Mm -hmm. and, and it uses that to swim in and out of it to sort of make more space. Interesting. The, mm -hmm. the other thing that we are seeing in like electron micrographs is that you see a lot of um, vacuoles that are not back containing bacteria. So there seems to be a lot of production of these vacuoles that sort of accounts for the spread and, and the overall volume distribution. And you mm -hmm. see a little bit of swelling, but it depends on the kind of bacteria you're working with. If they express the type three secretion system, you see them swell. But if you don't see expression of the type three secretion system, you don't see swelling. So. Okay, very quick. So there is a question coming in from, I think, Jeff Wein. The standard view I'm familiar with is that it's very difficult for PA to touch airway epithelia and even harder to penetrate. Were your epithelial cells grown with high resistant tight junctions and only apical application of PA? I mean, that's a million dollar question. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So a lot of the work that we are doing is in monolayers uh, that are do not have like the tight junctions as it's being referenced over here. But the mouse model that we're doing now is sort of a, trying to address that same question is that when we add bacteria directly to the epithelia, we see invasion, but are there determinants to that um, that could be looked at? No, that's a great question. Okay, so I think we're out of time now. Thank you so much. Uh, for your presentation that was awesome and so I would love to keep this going but I'm very much looking forward to the final conference presentation by Emily Kramer-Golinkoff. So Emily who lives with CF co-founded the organization Emily's Entourage and uh, she's sure to provide an uplifting and inspirational end to the conference. Uh, please return the auditorium and select her presentation. I think that presentation will start at 1.45 and I would like to thank everyone who attended the research sessions and uh, thanks for your questions and your engagement. And uh, yeah, I wish you best of luck for your research, uh, Noreen, and I uh, hope to see you and hear back from you next year. Thank you, Beata, and thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.